Hey there, welcome to night school. You know what day it is. You know what day it is. It's Tours Day. It's Tours Day. Tours Day. And you know, I'm not going to get caught up in current events. I commented on, on it at the beginning of yesterday's episode before I'd even really reviewed what had been going on. And, you know, I'm not going to get caught up. I feel that I was caught up in current events more than I could or should have been in the last few months. And I'm feeling clear. I'm feeling good mentally, all things considered. Happy to be done with December. Although December was fine. I just feel that my mind was all over the place. So I'm glad to be done with it for that reason. I feel like I have a little more focus. A little more focus. Focus pocus. You heard of hocus pocus? We'll try focus pocus. But yeah, with the whole current events, I mean, I think just the feeling I have is that what happened yesterday was a trap. It was a trap. And, uh, you know, people fell into that trap. And uh, the whole situation has made everybody infinitely more insufferable. And if I were to focus too much on that, because I, you know, focus, if I were to focus, focus too much on that, I myself would become insufferable. And I'm even skirting the line right now as you hear me speak. I'm even skirting along that edge of becoming insufferable. But yeah, I'll just say that real quick. Like, how is it, how did, how has it made people more insufferable? You talking about me? No, I'm, I'm not talking about anybody in particular. Although I will say this, you know, I have a Facebook account, which I'm mostly connected to people that I know, whether it's people I've known personally, whether it's people, you know, whether it's coworkers, your ex-girlfriend's parents, my, my ex-girlfriend's parents, not yours, uh, whether it's my mom's friends, whether it's people I went to school with. I mean, it's the joke I always make, but it's not really a joke. It's more of an accurate description that happens to be kind of funny is that, you know, social media is a way to be connected to everybody you've ever known at every stage of your life. And so even people I haven't met personally tend to be people who are connected to me in some way, maybe through something creative, which I consider, you know, I've had contact with them. I know them. So I feel that, you know, that's sort of the purpose that Facebook serves. And I don't think it's a problem. I think it's actually good that it serves that purpose because you're not required to do anything with it. But it's nice to know that a channel is open. And through that channel, you can communicate with all of these people. And with Facebook, it tends to be people that I personally know. And maybe it's a result of uh, where I live. I don't know what it is. It could be all any number of factors. But everybody I know on Facebook tends to be on the left, outspokenly so, to the point where it's almost all they talk about. And uh, with that, though, you get a completely different perspective than you do elsewhere. Whereas my Twitter account, which I'll never share with anybody, you know, I follow people who are certainly not on the left. And so it's interesting, like a, a day like yesterday, I was bouncing between those pages, and I haven't been looking at those very much at all. You know, I haven't been checking those even daily. I, I've been checking those very sporadically. But yesterday, I wanted to kind of get up to date on what people were saying. And it's amazing. It was really night and day. But everybody was, not everybody, I got to stop generalizing. A lot of people were insufferable, regardless of where they sit and where they stand. 
where they sit and where they stand. Are you a sitter or a stander? Talking about the bathroom? What are you talking about? Might as well be. Might as well be talking about the bathroom, talking about this subject. But there was just a... At least everybody was equally insufferable. Maybe not everybody. I shouldn't say that. I mean, I'm just, just me being who I am, I found the left much more insufferable. Like the default. The default for me... Most of my adult life is that I've found the left more insufferable than the right. At least since the Bush era. At least since the Bush era, I found the right pretty insufferable. Not because I was out and out opposed to everything the right stood for during the Bush era, but I just found their approach to be, uh, I mean, I wasn't compatible with it, that's for sure. And uh, that's how I feel about the left most of my adult life here. But, uh, you know, what I saw a lot of, what I love is just to, I'm trying to crawl away from that edge. I'm trying to crawl away from that abyss that I'm about to fall into. But, you know, one thing I noticed is the way everybody on each side, and this really seemed to be everybody, I'm going to generalize in this case, felt that the cops, the cops sided with the other guy. Oh, you see how the cops let him in? Oh, you see how the cops, uh, they shot one of the, the shot, the cop, the, I can't even say it. The shots copped one of the, uh, the protesters. The cops shot a protester. They're obviously out to get us. No, 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 no. The cops let you guys in, which shows that they're on your side. It's this, it's exactly what happens in football games, and it's one of the worst things in football is when somebody blames everything on the ref, and two people who are fans of opposing teams can sit and watch the same game, and they will both say that the ref is favoring the other team. It's that negativity bias. They do it with announcers, too. Like, I used to follow a, uh, like a Seahawks forum, you know, like a Seahawks board I would just look at it. And it was fairly smart people, too. It wasn't idiots. It wasn't like the comment section of like the Seahawks Facebook page. This was a place for people to go to talk intelligently about football. And they were Seahawks fans. But it got really irritating because I, I would look at what people had to say. And they were almost always like, oh, do you hear how the announcers hated us? Oh, do you hear how the announcers wouldn't give us any credit, but they just complimented the other team the entire time? Do you see how the refs kept giving the other team a bunch of breaks and they kept uh, calling unnecessary penalties on us? And the thing that sucks about that is there are some times where there are egregious mistakes made by the refs. And there are times where those egregious mistakes tend to lean in one direction. I mean, I think the one of the most infamous examples was the NFC championship game a few years ago where the Rams and the Saints were playing, where the refs just... The ref was staring right at it as the Rams committed blatant pass interference, and they even discussed it afterward. The refs even dis- they discussed it to decide whether or not they were going to call a penalty. And you know, in the, in the NFL these days too, it's very easy to get a pass interference call. You can nudge a wide receiver and get pass interference. But this was just one of the worst examples I could imagine of pass interference and the ref was looking at it the refs discussed it but they decided not to call it and it really opened the door to all kinds of conspiracy theories because that was the first year that the Rams had moved to Los Angeles 
and there hadn't been a Los Angeles team in a long time. And so the the NFL was giving a huge marketing push to the Los Angeles Rams to try to build up a strong market in L.A. And, you know, I myself, you know, I found myself wondering. I was like, you know, did the refs get a memo from old Roger Goodell, the commissioner, telling them, hey, you know, give the Rams a break. It's going to do great. It's going to do great business if the Rams make it to the Super Bowl. You know, my mind went there because it was so blatant. And the fact that the ref, you could see his eyes seeing the same thing we are all seeing. So, you know, there are moments like that. And the Seahawks lost a Super Bowl in the mid-2000s against the Steelers. And the refs were, it was, it was a similar situation where it seemed like the refs were out to get us. But people do this every single game. And the problem with that is that you defeat your own argument when you actually have an argument. Like if you say that the refs are always out to get you, if you say that the announcers are always against your team, when they actually are, you lose that argument. It's the boy who cried wolf. It's, it's the boy who cried Wolfgang Puck. Who I, don't, I don't even know. Is that a chef? I don't remember who that is. I don't even know. I'm, I'm pretending I don't know who Wolfgang Puck is. Just to seem cool. Makes me seem really cool when I pretend that I don't know who Wolfgang Puck is. You know, it's been a while since I've used a lifeline. I'm going to look that up. Because actually, I'm forgetting who Wolfgang Puck is. And I think it's a chef. Okay, I was right. I didn't know what he looked like, though. I'm seeing, I'm seeing, just imagine being in my body, seeing through my eyes right now, and I'm seeing Wolfgang Puck for what I believe is the first time, because he's, he's got a pretty forgettable look about him. I don't think, I don't know if anybody's ever said that about him. Wolfgang Puck, you mean the guy who has a very forgettable look about him? Uh, but anyway, boy who cried Wolfgang Puck, enough, enough of that joke. Um, you know, that's what happens, though. If you say that the refs are always out to get... Do you see what the refs did? Oh, my God. And then you sound so... Whining is so disgusting. Whining is just the worst sound. Even... That word is perfect for it, too. The word whining is the perfect word for whining. The word whining is the perfect word for whining. Because it sounds like whining. Like, even if you didn't know what that meant and somebody said, stop whining, you would know exactly what they meant. But it's what happens when you watch football games. Like, no matter who you are, it seems like the, the man is out to get you. And you could have two people watching the same game rooting for different teams, and each of them will think that the refs were out to get their team. There's something about the persecution complex that gets people high. They get high off of the persecution complex, even when they themselves aren't a participant, like even an observer. And that's what I was seeing yesterday from people on each side. And I don't pretend that there's two sides. I don't pretend that there's only two sides to this political chaos. Uh, but for the sake of this, I will say on both sides, I saw people saying the cops were favoring uh, the left. Oh, no, the cops were favoring the right. The cops, the cops, the cops, the cops, the refs. The refs, the cops, the refs, the refs, the cops, the refs. That's my song. It's my punk rock song. See, I could write the best punk rock song. I could write a better punk rock song than anybody who's ever written a punk rock song, but I don't do it because punk rock is for, well, you know what. You know what punk rock is for. 
can't even use the words anymore that I would use to describe that now. I don't really have a problem with it. It's just not my thing. I, it's not my thing, which is why I don't share the best punk rock songs ever written with people. I keep them to myself, except you got a snippet, which is the refs, the cops, the refs, the referees, the coppers, the ref. I don't know. No, I'm done. I'm just, I'm drinking a bang. I'm drinking a bang. It's a star blast. I haven't been to the Miami Cola store in a while. Haven't been to the Miami Cola store. Haven't had a bang in a little bit, maybe about a week. I've been trying to cut down, actually, because uh, for a while there, every time I was going to... I wasn't drinking them every day, but every time I was going to the grocery store, I was buying two. And that led to me drinking more bangs than I probably should have. You know, it needs to be special. It has to feel special. And speaking of bang and speaking of special, uh, congratulations to Brent. My buddy Brent let me know, I believe it was New Year's Day, a special day made even more special by the fact that he sent me a photo of his first Miami Cola. He bought his first, not just his first bang, he bought his first bang, but he also bought his first Miami Cola. So his first bang was a Miami Cola. That wasn't the case for me. My first bang was something, I think my first, this is crazy, my first bang energy drink, I was going for a walk at the local college here, and they had a bang vending machine, which is awesome. And those those college kids with their bang vending machine. But I tried to get... I couldn't see what the flavor was. I couldn't see what flavor I was choosing. So I just ran... Like, the can was reversed. So I just chose one that looked appealing. I think it was pink. It was pink and black. Just like all my clothes. And uh, it when it came down the chute, I looked at it and it was cotton candy flavored. And you can just imagine what that's like. As much as I praise Bang, imagine cotton candy-flavored Bang energy drink. I should get that again just to see what it was like, just to revisit those formative years, that, that formative day. <laughs> uh, so my first one wasn't a Miami Cola. So the fact that Brent here, his first Bang was a Miami Cola. And unlike somebody else, Stacy, you know, I'm, I'm not calling you out here, but she told me that she got a Miami Cola and that it tasted like flat diet cola. And she wasn't a big fan. She wasn't enthusiastic. And God bless her for trying it. God bless her for buying her first Bang Energy drink, her Miami Cola. But Brent, on the other hand, told me that it was great. And even if he was just trying to, you know, even if he was just trying to, you know, powder my face a little bit, even if he was just kind of throwing me a bone, uh, it's a good one. The... <laughs> He threw me a good bone there. Uh, but, uh, you know, I feel like a real estate agent here. I'm like, congratulations to Brent on his first house. Congratulations to Brent on his first Bang Energy drink. If you know, like, real estate agents, they'll make announcements like that when they sell a house. Congratulations to Mary and Tom on their first two-story Rambler. Is a Rambler two stories or is a Rambler? I don't even know. People talk about houses. I have no idea what they're talking about. Can a rambler have two stories, or is that exclusively one story? It doesn't matter, because I know Bang. And that means, I think I've sold four Bang energy drinks. Since I started talking about Bang energy drink on this show, I know I've sold at least three. And each person, this is a, I didn't ask for this at the time, but each person has sent me a photo. I was going to say four, but one of them was, I was sent a, a Bang meme 
uh, by Aaron, E-R-E-N. There's a couple Aarons I know of who listen to this show. This is E-R-E-N. And he sent me a bang meme. And that, to me, counts. That's almost like sending me a photo of a bang that you purchased. Like sending me a bang energy drink meme. That counts. It counts. That's at least like 75%. That might not be 100%, like buying a bang and sending me a photo of the bang that you're about to drink. This is getting perverse, isn't it? No, but uh, sending me a bang meme, that's close. You get more than partial credit, more than half credit. I would say three-fourths credit on that. Hell, screw that. I'm giving you full credit. I'm giving you full credit for that. Who am I to rank this? Who am I to rank these things? And speaking of rankings, I was thinking earlier today about you know, superlatives and top ten lists and how it's impossible for me to do that. And I remember, like, putting weight on that. Like, I remember reading people's top 10 album lists and caring. But it's impossible for me to do that. I can't understand it. I can't understand how you even rank things anymore. Not to say some things aren't better. Not to say some things aren't the best. You know, I use the phrase on here, my favorite favorite. It's kind of like the term best friend. Where I have a few best friends. And each one of them occupies a different space. And I might refer to them, like, when I'm not in their presence and I'm talking about them, I might say, oh, like, my, be- my best friend. Hey, Batty. Batty's one of my best friends. Absolutely one of my best friends. He's the only best friend that sleeps with me in, in bed. <laughs> um, but... uh it's kind of like that, where it's like, when I say best friend, I don't mean I only have one slot. I mean, I'm lucky to have any friends. So it's like, but I'm not like, I, I have one slot. Although people should do that. People, when they do year-end lists, when people do, here are my top 10 favorite movies. Here are my top 10 favorite albums. Here are my top 10, fa- top 10 favorite people. And not celebrities, not famous people. You should rank the people in your life. The top 10 people in your life this year. That's how to make top 10 lists interesting. Because albums, I just look at it and I'm like, how do you even do this anymore? Because, I mean, new albums used to be an event. They used to feel like an event. And I don't think this is me just being jaded. I don't think this is me just being bitter and burnt out. Although that too, not that I'm not those things. Not that I'm not those things. But I do think part of it is just, you know, I just don't even understand how you do that. I don't understand how you, I don't understand what goes into that. And, and, and when I see those now, I'm just kind of like, I just kind of roll my eyes, not at the person, but just kind of the, my eyes literally roll back into my head because I don't even know what I'm looking at. Although there are people who are the best at things. You know, I guess I do, I don't mind superlatives sometimes. I mean, you know, you think about something like, you know, there's some artists, there's some bands where you just look at them and you're like, they're the best to ever do it in that way. Like if you're familiar with Ildyar, and I was talking to a friend last night, you know, you know, an all-time favorite of ours. And it's like, that's the best, that, that guy's the best to ever do what he did. And nobody can, you know, while there's maybe one or two other groups who played in his style, who do it well, you know, nobody can do what he did as well as he did it uh, with the conviction, with everything. And I, you know, there's some things I don't really go into here and that style of music is one of them. I leave that out of this show, but I just that just came to mind where there's some artists where you just go, okay, they're the best to ever do that. 
And I don't think there's much argument to be made. I don't think that anybody who knows what I'm talking about could possibly argue that. When we're talking about not just a genre, but a a subcategory of a genre, a particular niche. You know, sometimes there's just somebody who filled a particular niche so well and with such striking conviction that nobody else could ever possibly beat that. So there are situations like that. But, you know, one last current event talk, you know, the word terrorist gets thrown around. It's this word people love to use, be like, well, you call, because you call Muslims terrorists, we're going to call you domestic terrorists. People love to throw that around. People were doing it last summer where they're like, Antifa, BLM, or terrorists. And then people turn around and they're like, white supremacists, Republicans, are terrorists. And if you're using that argument, you know, just go to sleep. Not forever. I don't want anybody to die. I'm just saying, go to bed. Go to bed. Lay your, even if you can't sleep, just go lay down. Because the problem with calling people terrorists is that you make them terrorists. It kind of reminds me of the movie Stand By Me, one of my all-time favorite movies, where uh, River Phoenix's character is talking to Gordy. I believe Chris is is River Phoenix's character. I'm embarrassed that I can't remember this offhand. I think his name's Chris. But he's talking to Gordy. Will Wheaton's character, and he's telling him how he got accused of stealing the lunch money at school. There was some sort of like lunch money fund in a in a maybe like a container at school, and it got stolen. And they accused him because he had a reputation. He had a reputation as a bad kid, and he's crying as he's talking about this. He's crying at like you know the humiliation of this accusation. Where it's like, you know, they typecasted him. They assumed that because the lunch money got stolen, that Chris stole it. And then Gordy asks him, he says, did you steal it? And he says, yeah. And that to me, to this day, that's one of the most poignant scenes in a movie that I've ever seen. And it is so endlessly complex to think about the idea of he did do it. He does steal things. And when they accused him without evidence, just based on their intuition and their knowledge that he steals, they got the right guy. But there also is a sort of injustice to that of calling him a thief without having any evidence, but just saying, you're the kid that we know steals. We know that you're a thief. And the unfortunate thing is that reinforces it. You know, in the in that story, he's a tragic character because he becomes a lawyer later on and he gets killed in a trying to break up a fight. Exactly what I was talking about. I was talking yesterday about how when you try to be the peacemaker, the people who are fighting then unite against you sometimes, which is why you can't always be a peacemaker because all of a sudden you're like, you're now a common enemy between these two combatants. And in Stand By Me, you don't see it, of course, but he talks at the end of the movie about how River Phoenix's character overcame his thievery and became a lawyer, and he tried to break up a fight, and he got stabbed in the throat. So he's this tragic character, but just that scene where he talks about, he's just crying, 
about uh, just incredible acting, too. He's crying about this accusation, this unfair accusation, but it turns out they were right. And uh, I'm trying to think about the best way to to frame this with the terrorist thing, because it's very similar. It's very similar. Like, I understand why people want to label somebody a terrorist. Especially when somebody is doing something aggressive and dangerous with a political motivation. But when you label somebody a terrorist, you encourage them to be a terrorist. Like if your girlfriend, say you'd never cheated, and I've never cheated, you know, I want to say that. I've never cheated on a girlfriend. I've, I've certainly done some things I'm not proud of. You know, I've, I've done some things I'm not proud of with people who were involved, where it was they were cheating on somebody else. Like, I, I'm not proud of that. Um, but I myself have never cheated. But, but just, why do I even need to confess that? Um, but anyway, just to make a point here, it's like it's if your girlfriend always confused you of cheating, but you'd never cheated in any way. Eventually, you might just cheat because you've already been labeled that way. You know, if somebody accuses you of stealing all the time and you've never stolen. Or there was some explanation. You had some reason for it. But somebody labels you a thief. You might eventually become a a full-blown thief just because, hey, I've already been labeled that way. And this happens a lot. This happens more often than we even realize where someone gets typecasted in life. Even if that doesn't fit them, even if they're, even if the person doing the typecasting is projecting something onto them. Even if it's not rooted in reality, when you typecast somebody, you suddenly give them the ability to be that thing. And they might decide to just be that thing since they're already getting called that. And so when I hear this term terrorist thrown around, I just think, like, I hope you know what you're doing. I hope you know what you're doing when you call somebody a terrorist. Because you might very well be creating the thing that you're accusing somebody of already being. Or you might be turning somebody else into that thing who sympathizes with that person that you're calling a terrorist. And when a word loses its value, I stop using it. Like, I don't remember the last time I even used the word terrorist because the word lost its value. It's like the word racism. I don't use that word. Even though there is behavior, even though there are beliefs that fit that definition, I stopped using that word because that word has been abused, twisted, and stretched to the point where it has no meaning to me anymore. And I don't use words that have no meaning unless I'm just having a good time and then everything I say has no meaning. But no, there's certain words where I just stop using them because they have no meaning. Terrorism, racism, there's, uh, there's a long list actually. There's a long list of words that I don't use because to me they've lost their meaning and they're used almost exclusively in a manipulative way. And when you use a word in a manipulative way, that's the best way to drain it of all its energy. That's the best way to ruin the potency of an idea or word is to use it in a manipulative way. 
So en- enough about that. You know, going back to this idea of the you know top ten lists and that ranking people, rank the people you know and let them know. Let let everybody know who made it on your top ten list. The people you know. Turn it into a competition. Although in reality, if people knew that they were going to be ranked by their peers at the end of the year, because I mean, we do this in our brains anyway, it might not be totally hierarchical, like one through 10, but we kind of do this. You know, some people are, oh, so-and-so, they're, uh, I'm feeling pretty good about them. They powdered my face a little bit. They, uh, they gave me a nice little friendly punch on the arm. I'm feeling pretty good about that person. You know, we all do this. There's ups and downs to our relationships, to the people we know. So we all do a little bit of this, but it'd be fun to me if we all knew that at the end of the year, everybody we know would have a top 10 list. And I mean, if you're a creative person, you know, you already feel that way. Because you're, if, you, if you created something in a given year, you're like, is anybody going to put my thing on a top 10 list? I'm checking the top 10 list to see if anybody included my thing on the top 10 list. Oh, this top 10 list sucks. It's funny. We even rank each other's top 10 lists. Like you can look at somebody's top 10 list. I mean, I was just pretty much talking about this. Like you can look at somebody else's top 10 albums of the year and be like, this isn't this, this top 10 list is not in my top 10 list of top 10 lists. So you can even rank top 10 lists, but I, I just don't understand even doing that at this point. Cause I don't, aside from having favorite favorites, you know, I'm a person, I have multiple best friends, you know, when I say, oh, uh, so-and-so is my best friend. It doesn't mean that that excludes somebody else. People occupy different spaces in your life. People occupy different compartments in your brain. So, uh, you know. Some of these things can uh, include, I don't know, maybe I'm, uh, when it comes to friends, I'm, uh, it's like polyamorous best friendship. You know, while I don't believe in polyamory when it comes to romance, I'm all about poly best friendship. Um, and I think that's a healthy way to be, you know. I don't know, if you don't have to exclude things, you shouldn't, but sometimes you do. Sometimes you have to be exclusive. Sometimes that's necessary. And it's funny, too, because I have a lot of difficulty giving out these lists. Because every once in a while, you're put in a position where you have to define yourself with a list. And when I was in college, I've mentioned this before because I'm so proud of it. But when we would go around the room and introduce ourselves, because the place I went to college, we would have lectures, which was a much larger group of people. But they would break the classes down where a couple times a a week you would meet with a smaller group to have, you know, deeper discussions on a given subject. And so you got to know those people a little better than the people in your main lecture. But we would go around the room, of course, as everybody does, and introduce ourselves and say something. I think we were supposed to say something that we like, or I don't remember what the prompt was, but we had to go around the room and say, my name's Eric, and, you know, I like... Uh, you know, and that's exactly how I feel, even just trying to give an example. But we were supposed to say things like that. And so I just said, Eric, no hobbies, no interests, which is way more of an attention horror thing to say. To my discredit, 
what I said was actually the opposite of what I said. Eric, no hobbies, no interest. To me, it was a joke. To me, it's funny. Because nobody's going to remember the fact that you say, oh, my favorite band is uh, Bob Marley and the Whalers, and uh, my favorite artist is Pablo Picasso. Pablo Picasso. You know, nobody's going to remember that you said that in your introduction. They might remember your name. You're lucky if they remember your name. So to me, it's just kind of a useless exercise, although I understand it. It's friendly. But me being me, I had to be obtuse. And nobody laughed. Nobody laughed when I did that. Eric, no hobbies, no interest. To me, that's funny, though. I found the humor in it. I amused myself. And the teacher, he was like a 75-year-old man on the verge of retirement, the professor. He did one of those, okay. You know when you make your 75-year-old white-haired professor pull in the, okay? You know when you force them to do that, that you've really, uh, you've fallen flat on your face? Although I'm still proud of it. No hobbies, no interests. But it's so hard for me in that situation to come up with something. And like obviously I could have said, oh, I like hiking. I like hiking and drawing. You know, I easily could have said that. But it's even harder when it's something specific. Like there was a workplace I was in and we had a a team building activity where we were we basically did this. Where we went around in a circle and we had to come up with our we had to list our three favorite albums. Or maybe it was three, I think it was three favorite bands or artists. It was some sort of like, who are your three favorite musicians? Who are your three favorite musicians? Your three favorite magicians. List your three favorite magic, magic, uh, I can't even, I don't even know where I'm going with that. List your three favorite bands or musicians was the the activity. And that's so hard to do because I'm not going to go into something super niche I'm not going to go into like the nuances of my taste and be really pretentious. Uh, and usually in that situation, I just go with things that I've been into for a very long time and that I still have a fondness for. So Danzig, this was a fairly relaxed workplace. So I want to say I included Slayer. You know, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to include anything like too far out there. I may have included Slayer. And something else, maybe something, Black Sabbath for sure. You know, things like that. Things that are going to be, things that aren't going to raise any eyebrows, but they'll communicate something. People will kind of get a feel for you, maybe a little bit. But it's so hard to do that. And, And so like for me, it's like it's not actually, when I get given a prompt like that, like tell your coworkers what your three favorite bands of all time are. You know, I'm not going to be able to give an honest answer. Not that my answer was dishonest, but it's like I just go with the big ones from that I've been into my whole life, you know. But what was funny about that is when I said Danzig, this very straight-laced, you know, I would say she was about a 50-year-old woman, looked good for 50. If she, through some weird, uh, just through some weird turn of events, heard this, she looked 40. I believe she was close to 50, though. She goes, Danzig. And she goes, I have a Dan... The first tattoo I ever got was a Danzig tattoo. And interestingly, she uh, brought in... She didn't just... Because we knew this beforehand, I guess. I don't know what it was, but like she brought in a Dead Kennedys LP. And this was a very straight-laced, serious woman. Like I said, about 50 years old. You would never think she was into anything. She barely talked. And it turns out, though, she was a punk in the 80s. 
and had a mohawk. And the first tattoo she ever got in the late 80s was a Danzig tattoo. And I, I don't know what the tattoo was. I think it was it had to have been the uh, like the demon skull, the Danzig logo, the demon skull. And I, I doubt she got the Danzig logo. I doubt she got the word Danzig. She has a tramp stamp of the word Danzig across her lower back. No, she probably got the demon skull. But she was just like, Danzig, really? She was like... Like and for her to have gotten that tattoo in the late '80s is awesome because it's like that's before Mother was popular. You know, while Mother came out in I guess the late '80s, it didn't become popular until the early '90s. Uh, so she was like a first wave Danzig fan, and she was just taken aback because she didn't expect. I mean, she probably thought about me like, "Oh, this guy's just like a normal. He's a techie." That was when I had a techie job, so she was probably like, oh, "This young twenty-eight-year-old techie." But it turns out I'm a Danzig fan, and we actually connected over it, you know? And, you know, I was talking about juxtaposition yesterday where some people kind of use that as a technique. They'll be like, oh, you thought that I was a... You thought I was a goth. But I listened to Nicki Minaj every night, and I know all the lyrics. You know, people will do that because they like to be like, I'm going to surprise you. And another example of that, I, I think I remember when I first picked up on that, Because I was reading an interview, like when I was in, I must have been in, I was probably 15 years old. I was reading an interview with this sort of pseudo metal band that I liked at the time and that I would be embarrassed to admit I liked now. I don't, I don't like them anymore. It was just like a, you know, you have those fleeting things, but I was reading an interview with them when I was about 15. And like I said, they played metal, but it was this kind of pseudo metal. And there was an interview with them, but it was aggressive music, you know, it was distorted guitars screaming vocals, that kind of thing. I mean, there's nothing that embarrassing about it. It's just something I would, I can't imagine listening to now. But uh, I was reading an interview with them, and the interviewer asked them, like, so what kind of metal are you into? What kind of music you listen to? Or what, what new metal bands? And they were like, we don't listen to any metal. We only listen to Radiohead and, uh, you know, something poppy. It was like, we only listen to Radiohead and you know, Justin Timberlake or something like that. And at the time, I remember thinking, I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing by being a metal band and answering an interview by saying, we don't listen to metal, we only listen to Radiohead. You know, I know exactly what kind of trick you're pulling with that. And, you know, I'm not saying that, I'm not hating on them for it, but it's just, I knew that, I knew that trick juxtaposition oh that's so unlikely I can't believe that you guys play this aggressive music I can't believe you guys play this aggressive music but you listen to Radiohead oh my god I can't believe it I can't believe you guys sit around before band practice listening to Nicki Minaj you know nothing is surprising and sometimes when you know and that doesn't mean you shouldn't like like what you like but sometimes people stress that a little too much and they kind of turn it into a point. Because those guys, the reality is they were probably sick of metal. They tour, they play with metal bands, all their friends are in metal bands, they play in a metal band, and they probably wanted some contrast in their life. Whereas if they were surrounded by Radiohead fans, if they played music that sounded like Radiohead, they'd probably be like, yeah, we listen to Suffocation. Because that'd be a different form of juxtaposition. It would have been a reversal. But that was the first time I remember having this thought where I was like, oh, you're trying to prove something. You're trying to surprise people. 
you're trying to do something, you're trying to be unpredictable. And so that interview just reminded me, but it, with that coworker where this lady who was totally unsuspecting, and she wasn't trying to be unsuspecting. She was a punk in the 80s. She got a Danzig tattoo, and she, you know, went on with her life. She had kids, and she, you know, just worked jobs and had become just kind of a normal woman. You know, I don't know what goes on in her mind. I don't say normal as a pejorative. She just seemed very straight-laced. And it turns out, though, you know, she had a Danzig tattoo. And that, to me, that's juxtaposition. That's unlikely. And in that situation, it was real. You know, it wasn't somebody trying to manufacture. It wasn't like her th- her thing wasn't like, oh, yeah, I'm the normal lady who secretly has a Danzig tattoo. Although she should think that. If she's ever feeling low, if, if that coworker, ex-coworker of mine, if she's ever feeling down, she should just think, I'm the lady who everybody thinks is really normal, but I got a Danzig tattoo in the late 80s. And after I left that job, she got a hold of me and she said, I have something for you. And we met up for a drink and she gave me two giant Danzig posters from the 80s, from the late 80s. These were early Danzig posters and they were absolutely massive. Like, they take up half of a wall. You know, these are not just, like, movie poster size. These are massive. You, If you put these up in your room, you now have a Danzig room. Somebody says, oh, can you go in the Danzig room for me and get me a, uh, a candle? Because we also keep our candles in the Danzig room. But she gave me these two rolled-up Danzig posters that she had stashed. And I, I was impressed by that. I was impressed that she kept her old Danzig posters. Even though she, it seemed like she'd kind of moved on with her life a little bit, that, kind of, that phase seemed like it was behind her, she kept her old Danzig posters. And why wouldn't she? Because she, you know, she has a Danzig tattoo. She's reminded, of, that's amazing, because she, she's reminded of Danzig every day. You've heard of the girl with the dragon tattoo, Let's talk about the girl with the Danzig tattoo. Now, she gave me her giant Danzig posters, which I should really put up. You know, since my mom passed and I, I now have control over her house, I should just put those Danzig posters up, you know, in the living room. I should turn the living room into the Danzig room. Oh, the living room? You mean the Danzig room? But that's good juxtaposition. When it happens naturally, it's cool. When something naturally surprises you, it's cool, but when it's manufactured, it's not cool. I don't like manufactured surprises. Um, But uh, it was just funny, you know, because we connected over that. And it it all started with a list of your top three favorite artists, something that I dread. I dread being forced to do that. Because I just can't rank things. It's, It's difficult to rank things. It's such a forced exercise. The thing about drinking a bang while you record an episode is you have to remember to drink it. You have to remember to take sips. Uh, You have to remember to actually consume the drink. Because, I mean, the amazing thing is it's kind of like a junkie or something where you get high just obtaining the drugs. Where, you know, just going to your dealer's house gets you high before you even get the drug. I mean, that used to happen to me with weed, where I'd just, I'd be so excited 
just to be on my way to get weed after maybe a drought of no weed, that I would be pretty much high off of that alone. It's kind of the same thing for me with a bang energy drink. I mean, I have drink about half of it, but uh, whenever I record an episode with a can of bang, it's funny because it probably comes across like I'm bouncing off the walls, but in most cases, I haven't even gotten into it yet. I'm high off of the idea of drinking a bang. And the reality is it doesn't really boost me that much. You know, my caffeine consumption, as I've mentioned, is so out of control. I've been, actually, I've been drinking it less. In addition to cutting down on bang, I've been having less coffee in the morning. Not because I'm worried about it being bad for me. Simply because I want, I want to feel it. You know, I want, I want my tolerance to go down because I miss that buzz. I miss actually feeling caffeine. And it not just being some necessity that does nothing for me. I just need it. So I'm trying to cut down on that. But it's just funny to me how like I'll be bouncing off the walls doing these episodes. And meanwhile, I'm not even halfway through my bang. You know, if it was a Miami Cola, it'd be gone, though. You know, if I had that nectar on my tongue, it would be gone. I'm like a hummingbird with this, you know. Hummingbirds go and they... Uh, Stick their beaks in that sweet nectar. I think that's what they do. That's a, that's me and a and a Miami Cola. But those Miami Colas are very rare, because it turns out the Miami Cola store is the gas station. You can't really find them at other places, in my experience. It's a gas station exclusive, which there should be more of. There should be more gas station exclusives of other things. But yeah, this is just some of the sort of stuff that's on my mind today. Focus, pocus. Don't use words once they lose their potency. It's kind of like a, a tolerance thing. I mean, it's very much like that. When words lose their potency, it's almost like drinking too much caffeine. It's almost like anything losing its potency. Who knew? Who knew that words are just like caffeine, where if you use them too much and you use them too broadly, you no longer feel them. They no longer mean anything. Coffee no longer means anything if you drink it too much. Although that's true. That's actually true. That was unintentionally poignant. If you drink too much coffee, coffee no longer means as much to you. If you use a word too much, it no longer means as much to you or anyone else. But I think a word can regain its potency. I think if you let a word breathe for a little while. If you give it some breathing room and use it sparingly, I think a word can gain its meaning back. Instead of using it all day, every day, use it once a day. And then get to the point where maybe you can go a day without using a word. Although I wouldn't be able to go a day without caffeine. I can't imagine doing that. I can't imagine. Like yesterday morning and this morning, I, I had to do I, a couple things I had to do out in the world. And uh, I brought my first coffee with me because I, I was on the go. I had stuff I had to do. So I brought my first coffee of the day with me, which is interesting because normally, especially in the age of coronavi, you know, I just wake up and I just drink as much coffee as I want first thing in the morning at home. And that's my routine before I do anything. I drink two giant cups of coffee usually. So the idea of taking my first coffee on the road is a little bit different. And it, it actually helps with what I'm talking about, which is cutting down. It helps you cut down when you just take one with you on the road. 
because you're going to be satisfied enough. You know, take it in a big to-go cup, take it in a giant thermos, drink it in 10 minutes, burn your mouth. No, just take a cup with you. And, you know, it's a good way to cut down. But yeah, you know, I mean, I think it's the same thing for, I mean, I was going to go into like a, no, I don't know about that. I was going to say with porn, you know, there's a, a big conversation going on these days, which I find interesting, where there's a huge anti-porn attitude among young men now. And I think in large part, it's because they, when you have too much of something, it means less. And there's this, you know, rising, and I don't even mean this to be a, a pun, but there's a rising trend of impotence among young men, among my generation, among younger men. And people think that's in large part due to access to porn. Because young men have have been able to satisfy their every desire through internet porn to basically see the exact type of woman they want to see and then get bored of that. And I don't like to talk about this kind of thing. This is like bathroom talk. I don't like body talk. I don't like biology talk, but sometimes it's necessary. But one thing I, I noticed with internet porn, and like I'm kind of, you know, I'm part of this. As much as I don't like to be a part of things, I would say... I've kind of joined in a little bit on this anti-porn wave, not in a puritanical sense where I think this stuff should be outlawed. I don't believe that at all. I believe as long as nobody is being coerced into doing porn, there are no, there are no real ethical issues. It's sort of a spiritual issue. You know, I I think it's sort of a spiritual issue as silly as that sounds where I think there's a reason why so many different religions advise or even demand, command, demand, command that people not give in to sexual impropriety. You know, even Buddhism goes into it. And I think pornography can definitely be seen as a form of sexual impropriety. And... We now have a couple generations of young men who have been immersed in it, who have access to it whenever they want. Because, you know, even when I was a, a teenager and the Internet, you know, was picking up steam, you know, even then, you know, porn was something that you had to be careful about. You had to be secretive about it because maybe you were using the family computer. You had to clear your search history. You had to do it, you know, before your parents got home from work. You know, it was this sort of secretive thing. And then we reached a point where everybody had their own laptop, their own phone. You know, you you had plenty of opportunity to look this stuff up. And so sure enough, you would. And there's this argument, too, which I don't really know about, you know, from my own firsthand experience, but where having access to everything you want. Like you can literally go to a website and there are subcategories that you can click on to find the exact body type, the exact hair color, all of these details. You can search for all these details and find the exact type of woman you want to see doing exactly what you want to see her do. And there's an argument that like that has led people's it's caused people's perversions to escalate. Like they need more and more perverted things to get themselves off. And I believe that because it's, it's like needing harder and harder drugs. You know, I'm sure it works that way. 
again, I don't like to talk about this stuff with myself, but what I will say is that that's not the case for me. Like, I've never experienced an escalation in perversion. Like, I just kind of have always liked what I like. But at the same time, the fact that you have access to that at any given time does something for sure. You know, and so there's this this rising trend of impotence among young men. And it's interesting that men have pushed back now. Like, it's weird to see some of the discussions that take place online. I find this genuinely fascinating, where it used to be where it was like girls were the ones saying, porn is sick. I won't let my boyfriend look at porn. Where everybody except the guy, the guys were the ones who were like, give me the porn, man. Dude, porn rules. That was the guys saying that. And everybody else was like, no, you shouldn't look at porn. Porn is evil. Porn is sick. And then now we're in this age where there's this rising trend of young men who are saying, I'm, ag- I'm against porn. And they're encouraging other young men to not look at porn. And the people who are giving pushback on that are young women. And they're saying being anti-porn is, uh, what's the word they always use? Uh, that's sex negative. That's not very sex positive to be anti-porn. So it's weird how the tables turn. It's kind of like with the free speech thing where, you know, one of my biggest problems with the fundamentalist, you know, the evangelical Christian right wing that was dominating politics in the early 2000s was that they were very pro-censorship. They were actively trying to censor everything they considered blasphemous. And again, the tables have turned to where now it's the, you know, the liberated left-wingers who are pushing this censorship harder than even the right wing did 20 years ago. And so it's just interesting how the tables turn on these issues where I'm like, huh, it's the left wing who is trying to censor everybody. And it's women who are pro-porn and men who are anti-porn. It just shows you how the cycles change things, you know? It just, it just shows you how things cycle in and out. And I don't doubt this is the end of it. Or, or I, I doubt, rather, I doubt this is the end of it. You know, I'm sure in 20 years, men will... It's contrast, We play a game of contrast as human beings, and trends are based on this game of contrast where you get used to one way, and then you got to go the opposite because you're sick of it the other way, or you think that it's, you think that being too far, you know, you've looked at too much porn, so you've ruined porn, and now you have to be anti-porn. But when you're anti-porn for 20 years, you might turn around and be like, you know, maybe it's a good idea to look at porn a little bit. And then by then, the young women will be like, you know what, like, my OnlyFans account that I made in 2020 made me really depressed and humiliated. And now I'm anti-porn again. You know, so you can't, you know, set your watch to these things. Oh, now young men are anti-porn. And of course, not all young men, but there is this significant trend of young men who are against porn. And I've just I've observed it because I find it genuinely interesting, and the arguments they make are are good. 
And, you know, I'm, but like when I say that I have sympathies with that, it's not that I feel that porn should be censored or that people shouldn't have access to it. It's just simply that I think people should show some restraint. I think they should show some discipline. Um, but one thing that, you know, I have noticed with porn is that when you look at it too much, you, I mean, well, here's one thing I've noticed with it, which is that, like, it's interesting how nobody watches the same porn video over and over again. Nobody watches the same porn video over and over again. People go through different porn videos, and that's interesting to me. Like, not, and that's not even an example of, like, the escalation, like, the escalating perversion of a young man who looks at too much porn. We're like, oh, he was into just blondes with DDs. You know, when he was 15 years old, he was just looking at pictures of uh, blondes posing with DDs. And then he progressed to, to blondes with DDs engaged in hardcore scenes. And now he's into nipple clamps and sh- girls with shaved heads wearing gas masks. You know, it's it's not even that sort of escalation. It's just that people get bored of the same thing, which is interesting. Like a young man who looks at one porn video and enjoys it, I'm not going to go into detail, uh, he just likes it. It's art. No, but if he enjoys a video, he's probably not going to want to watch that same video again, which is really interesting. It's really interesting that somebody doesn't just watch the same video over and over again. They like variety. They like something new. And I, I think that does play out in, you know, the way we select people. Like, you get sick of being with the same person. I'm personally, you know, monogamous. I can't imagine not being. And I've considered it. I've thought about what that would be like, and I'm just not somebody who can be anything except monogamous. Uh, However, it is interesting to me, though, when it comes to... Because monogamy, it isn't about perversion. It isn't about sex. That's why it works. Monogamy to me works because that deal is not based around sexual pleasure alone. Whereas porn is. Porn isn't a relationship. Porn isn't dynamic. It's focused on the body. It's focused on pure sexual excitement. So it makes sense that when something is in this tunnel vision of pure sexuality, why you would want variety. Because that's often what people want when they cheat. That's often what people want when they engage in these polyamorous uh, relationships where a lot of that is based around sex. And there are people who would argue against me, but I've known people who would do that. I live in a town where there's a bunch of polyamorous people. I've heard their shtick. No matter what they say, a lot of it, there's a, there's a general preoccupation with sex for at least one of the people, if not all. Um, but uh, with that, it is interesting that when you put something into that tunnel, the tunnel of only sexuality, how people don't, uh, they don't veer toward monogamy. They want variety, even in your porn taste. Oh, uh, yeah, I like, I'm, I'm a monogamous porn watcher. I only watch the same girl. I like that idea. It's just not realistic. And even somebody who's monogamous in their relationships will still want 
sexual variety when it comes to their porn habits. Just a fascinating thing. Just a fascinating little snippet of human psychology. Uh, But that's about enough porn talk. It's not that I'm ashamed or embarrassed to talk about it. I think it's one of those things that we rightfully keep to ourselves. I think that talking about you know, and maybe you have confidants. I don't know, whatever it is. I don't have friends that I talk to this about. Fortunately, all of my male friends are on the same page as I am. Where, yeah, like occasionally, occasionally you mention something, but you don't sit there and compare notes about women. And, uh, you know, I've, you have to communicate that to your women friends as well. That's a boundary you have to set if you have close female friends, is you have to establish that, hey, I don't want to hear about the nitty-gritty uh, of what you're involved in. You know, it's similar to politics. It really is. Sexuality and politics. And I am a firm believer in not just throwing politics out there. I don't consider politics small talk. And right now, politics are filling the role of the weather. You know, like I've mentioned before, you know, since my mom passed, some of her friends contact me and I love it. I love having a connection to people that my mom cared about. And who, and more importantly, who cared about my mom. But because my mom was, you know, a Democrat, hated Trumpsfeld, they assume that I want to talk about that. They assume that small talk with me is going to be, did you see what he did? Did you see what he did? Can you believe what he did? You know, that tends to be small talk to them, and I don't consider that acceptable small talk. And it sucks because we have a lot we could talk about. And fortunately, you know, the conversation can get steered in other directions. Animals, my mom. There's a lot of other things to talk about. I was talking to my buddy last night, and he was saying how over the holidays he had to, he was put in a few different social situations with people in our age group. You know, friends of friends, that sort of thing. And the small talk was all just like Biden, anti-Trumpsfeld, Joe Obama talk. And I'm just like, that's small talk. You know, I am a firm believer in not talking about politics just arbitrarily. Not treating it like you're talking about the weather. But it's so, uh, it's so built into people. It's so attached to people. It's so, people are so infected by it infected like the way i said that infected it's people are so infected by politics and not just politics themselves i mean i I was mentioning myself because here i am talking about it but i was mentioning how i felt infected for the last few months i think it's good to observe it's good to think about it but i myself felt infected and i know i'm not infected right now infected he says infected really weird it's like when people say TV instead of TV. TV. Turn on the TV. It's kind of like that infected. <laughs> no, but I know I'm not infected right now because yesterday I felt such indifference and ambivalence to what was, you know, a, a very heated event. Like I feel like I would have responded to the events in Washington, D.C. yesterday, much differently two months ago than I did yesterday. And it's a good thing that I responded the way I did to it. It's a good thing because I realized, oh, I'm not infected. 
I'm not here. That was more normal. I'm learning how to say the word infected again with a little more normalcy. No, but I feel less infected, but I also know that that's an infection that can come back. It's like herpes flaring up to keep with the keep with the all the the sex talk. I don't know if I've mentioned this on the show before, but I had an idea for a bumper sticker a long, long time ago, and it just said, "Thought about sex today." And I've gotten some really great responses to that. Like some people I know I've told I've shared that idea with think that that's a great idea because it's so dark and it's meant to be dark. But a bumper sticker that says thought about sex today and that it's not meant to be a proposition like thought about having sex with me today. It's it's more. Uh, has your mind gone there yet today? Because it often does with people. It's sort of like a jab at our humanity. It's like throwing a jab. I don't, I don't even know that I need to explain it, but it's definitely intended to be kind of like a, a, little, a little gentle punch to the ribs to everybody, to just who and what we are. Thought about sex today? But what's funny about that is I've had friends tell me that they've shared that idea with like their girlfriends or their friends, and it's always met with like an adverse reaction. People don't think it's funny or they think it's weird. So it's just that's funny to me. Um, but that was my idea for a bumper sticker. Thought about sex today? That was my, I don't know. I'm always trying to come up with a million dollar idea and I'm always left with a bumper sticker. All I can think about is selling bumper stickers. Like, uh, coexist back to that. The coexist guy I saw yesterday ruthlessly tailgating somebody i want to get back into that Um, this is just going too far i'm going going too long Uh, but just i was thinking about tailgating about what that's supposed to communicate because sometimes what tailgating communicates is drive faster a lot of times that's what it is and i've tailgated people full disclosure i have tailgated people before one time ruthlessly there was a time where i was driving and a lady very dangerously cut me off on a fast road. And so I just hounded her. I repeatedly honked. I had road rage. And I repeatedly honked and tailgated her dangerously close. And my girlfriend at the time was with me, and she was really upset, as she should be. What I was doing was dangerous and unhinged. And she was especially upset at me because I was being a hypocrite as my coexist sticker on the back of my car, uh, you know, it just, it made me look like a hypocrite to be tailgating somebody like that. But I was thinking about tailgating because sometimes though, it's not just encouraging somebody to drive faster. Sometimes it's punitive. Sometimes it's, I'm going to punish you. I don't care if you drive faster. I'm going to punish you for being in front of me, for driving slow, for pulling out in front of me. And I don't know that anybody who is tailgating actually thinks about that, whether they think, oh, I'm punishing this person. It's just this, this instinctive response or I'm going to punish you. I am going to bully you. I am going to bully you. But yeah, I just crossed my mind. I was like, you know, I've never actually thought about the psychology of tailgating. And I'm going to write a book about that. I'm going to write my master's thesis the psychology of tailgating. That's going to be called coexist colon 
The Psychology of Tailgating. I wonder if anybody's written that. Instead, people write their thesis about things like, we discovered that if you put a droplet of water on a hot pan, it eventually evaporates. People like you'll come you'll see these studies and these theses. Thesis theses sounds like another word. Rhymes with another word. Is it a coincidence that the plural I think the plural of thesis is theses. Is it a coincidence that that rhymes with another word? I don't think so. But these things it's usually like something just super obvious. We discovered that the word theses rhymes with Yeah. Well, uh, you're going to close this out here. A lot of just different thoughts here. Just want to give a, you know, honestly, a shout out to everyone who listens to the show, especially anybody who made it through December with me. Anybody who listened consistently through December, thank you. I feel like that was just an all over the place month. I felt like my brain was in fragments. So if you listened to the show and enjoyed it throughout December, thank you. I'm feeling very focused now. Really, the only issue on my mind with this show is this dang audio issue, which seems to have infected, speaking of infected, every single episode now. And from what I've gathered, it's a USB issue. So I don't know what I'm going to do. It makes me feel dirty. You know, when I listen back to these episodes and I hear that feedback, when I hear that high-pitched noise, it makes me feel like I'm putting on dirty socks. Like sometimes, especially right now, you know, it's like I'll go, I'll leave the house for an hour. And, you know, of course, I'm not going to put those socks in the hamper. But even though they're not dirty, dirty, even though those, those aren't dirty, dirty socks, they still look like I've worn them. They're not fresh out of the wash. They're not fresh out of the dryer. And when you put used socks on, when you put socks on that you've already worn, you don't feel good. You forget about it. You forget that you're wearing them, but still, it's a disgusting feeling putting them on. And that's how I feel when this when this show has this audio issue that I can't seem to fix. And you know, and I know a little bit about audio. I know a little bit about audio. I do. I know a little bit about audio, which makes it extra embarrassing. I'm so embarrassed. But uh, it is starting to bother me. It was kind of a fun little novelty to joke around. Oh, keeping the audio files away. A high-pitched squeal in the background of your podcast keeps the audio files away. But it's at a point now where I'm like, when is this thing either going to fix itself? When is Windows going to do another update that like fixes this problem for me? But I think there's some sort of USB issue because uh, there's a you know when I put my uh, when I put my external hard drive in the USB, it says like, oh, there's an issue with the, there's an issue reading the device and it works, but it gives me some weird, ever since this happened, it's giving me this prompt that like there's an issue with the USB when I plug other things into the USB. And from doing a little research, it seems like people have experienced similar feedback issues because of some sort of USB malfunction. So I don't know what I'm going to do. And I have some stuff I have to do not related to this show that's going to involve needing to record to the computer. So I'm going to have to figure it out. 
And I know it's totally uninteresting and, you know, it must be amazing listening to this show and getting to hear me talk about my audio issues every other episode, but I just, it's like wearing dirty socks. And uh, I'm telling you, I'm letting you know that I know that my socks are dirty and I don't like it, but I haven't figured out how to use the washing machine yet. That's kind of how I feel about what's going on with the audio issues here. But then there's a part of me, there is like a rebel part of me that kind of likes having issues. I kind of like the idea where it's like, yeah, if you can't handle my audio at its worst, you can't, you don't deserve my audio at its best. I kind of feel that way about it too. You don't deserve this show at its best if you can't handle it at its worst. I 100% feel that way. I 100% feel that way. And as always, you know, my philosophy with this show is there is something for every individual person to love and hate about it. And sometimes one might outweigh the other. But I think the same person should feel that way. The same individual person who listens to this show should feel ambivalent to it at times. They should feel like, I don't know whether I like this or hate it, and right now I hate it. I actually see that as as a success. You know, we're not trying to hide our warts here. We're not trying to hide any warts. Um, but uh, that doesn't mean I want to shove, shove them in your face either. doesn't mean I want to shove my warts in your face. Horrible, horrible visual. But anyway, that's all we got. You know, I'm, I'm still, you know, I've barely drank any of this bang. And if I don't stop this episode now, I'm never going to finish it. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave This golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land Where children can run free So take my hand And walk this land with me And walk this lovely land with me Though I am just a man When you are by my side With the help of God I know I can be strong So take my hand And walk this land with me golden land with me.
With the help of God, I know I can be strong.